Turn with me to the book of Jonah. <clears throat> we started Jonah last Wednesday, and we read down through verse 4 and had a few comments on it, but I would like to begin at verse 4 and read through to verse 16. These are very important verses. Important not just because of what is going on in this particular circumstance that Jonah is finding himself in, but it has great bearing on our understanding of the sovereignty of God. And here's the questions, because there are differing theologies that are out there. Is what God accomplishes in this world contingent on the obedience of his people? Can God only work through the obedience of his people? That's the question. Can he work just as equally through disobedience as he does the obedience of his church? And this is a very uh, intriguing concept to consider. Because there are, again, there are certain uh, views out there. One, that, that is the way extreme, the, that is just nonsensical altogether, is that prayer gives God permission to act on earth. So without the prayers of his people, he can't do anything. That's, that's a very extreme view. And again, one that is just nonsense. But there are other theologies that are out there that would think that Unless the people of God are obeying him, that God cannot accomplish perhaps what he first intended to do. So, in the case of, let's say, you're, you're walking in obedience to the Lord. We'll just give this scenario. You're walking in obedience to the Lord. You're, you're doing all that you should be doing, according to our view of things. And then you fall into sin, and you stay there for a time, and then you, you come back to yourself as the prodigal son. And then you begin to think of these things prior that, man, God would have blessed me with this, or God would have uh, brought me here to this particular thing if only I had not disobeyed. Only if I had not fell into sin, or I had not been in rebellion, or whatever. We think, we think though, in, in terms like that a lot, even though we would look at that particular view and say, God's still working. But that particular view would be more like God had plan A for me, but then I messed it up, and so God had to bring about a plan B for my life. Now, that is going on this view of God working through the obedience of his people. But what does the scriptures actually present to us concerning the sovereignty of God? And we actually find quite the opposite. So here's some other things to think about on the grander scale, just to help put things in perspective for us before we head into the passage. Looking at the condition of the nation itself, we see sin running rampant. We see all kinds of things, and we can look back and we can see perhaps where the, where the church has failed throughout the years, and, and the condition of the country is because the church didn't do its job. And so we can think of those what-if kind of concepts, too. We can go back and say, well, only if the church had done what it was supposed to have done, we wouldn't be finding ourselves in the situation that we are. 
Sometimes we think that way. So did God have another plan for the nation as a whole, and because the church didn't do its job, plan B? Is that the way that it happened? Could God have brought about a different result in this nation among its citizens had, had just his people done what they were supposed to have done? Now, granted, could God have done differently than what we find today? Yeah, he could have. According to his own will and purpose, he could have done whatever. But we have to think now what actually did happen rather than the what ifs. Of, of we, can, we can drive ourselves crazy about the what ifs. How do we view the things that have taken place in this nation and the failures of God's people? How do we view our own rebellion? How do we view sin as a whole? Does it thwart anything concerning the will of God? Does it hinder anything concerning the will of God? And by the way, just by talking about these things, this is not at all uh, a, a, a giving us an excuse not to do something. Because regardless of what happens, we are still morally accountable to our Lord. Regardless. That is absolutely true. There is no we can give it up to determinism or fatalism and say, well, what will be what will be. You know, it's just it's the way it is. No, we recognize that we are absolutely accountable to our Lord for our obedience or our disobedience. But it goes back to this whole question, no. Is God using disobedience? Is God using sin still to bring about his intended purpose? Or is sin and disobedience somehow thwarting the, war, uh, the will of God? Those are things that we have to consider and think about. And it gets us thinking. Well, how does this work? What is some of the answers to this? Well, I think we find a lot of this, at least the beginning concepts here in Jonah. Here in chapter 1. And we're going to see here how the Lord is going to intervene. How we're going to find Jonah in great rebellion. And yet, even in this whole scenario, God is going to accomplish what he intended to accomplish, even through a rebellious prophet. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We are going to read verses 4 to verse 16. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us give our attention to the scripture. <clears throat> the Lord hurled a, wind, a great wind on the sea. And there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. And they threw the cargo, which was in the ship, into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, 
And I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened. And they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not. For the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the revelation of the knowledge of you that we gain through the scripture that is applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit of God who resides within us. Father, we pray that, that the Holy Spirit would accomplish great things in us tonight on account of this passage. I pray that he would encourage us so greatly, that he would strengthen us. Father, that he would, that he would shape our minds and sharpen, sharpen our minds to, to understand just how you work in this world, that we could be encouraged and, and be even more committed to do what you have called us to do. Let us not see this as a license to do anything other than to obey you, Father, and to do so with delightful hearts. Teach us tonight, and may you bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. So this book begins with Jonah <clears throat> being commanded by the Lord, go to Nineveh, and basically go to Nineveh and preach. That's what his intention is. Their wickedness has come up before me. Jonah raises up, and he's going to flee the other way. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. And so he's, as the text tells us, he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And we went over exactly what, did, what does that mean? As, as Jonah, he's, he's not ignorant of, of the omnipresence of the Lord. He knows that the Lord is everywhere. So we were talking about what exactly does it mean that he is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And it means that he is basically fleeing from his calling. He's basically telling the Lord, I don't want to do it. So here you go. Have it back. And I'm going to go the other way. And we talked about how the Lord is pursuing him. That the Lord is, is going to, to round him up. That he's going to teach him a great lesson uh, through this whole ordeal. But we talked about the intervention of the Lord being something a little bit different than perhaps what normally would happen. Oftentimes, whenever we're in rebellion, the Lord works in our hearts with guilt and conviction and all of that to, to shake us, to, to stir us up. Well, on this particular situation or this particular day, instead, the Lord hurls a great wind 
on the sea in order to hinder Jonah from going where he wants to go. Well, he talked about that. That's a very interesting thing as, as this word is used uh, two other times in this one chapter of how the, the sailors are, are throwing the cargo out of the ship, and that's the same word. They're, they're hurling the cargo out of the ship. Or when they hurled Jonah into the sea, it's them picking up something and, and throwing it. And the text is telling us that instead of Jonah being able to peacefully get to where he wants to go, instead the Lord hurls a great wind against him so that he cannot go anywhere. So the Lord hurls a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. This isn't just any particular storm. This is a storm that is causing great fear among the sailors. But look at what's going on here, because this is this is truly remarkable. You have this rebellious prophet. He's basically saying to the Lord, I don't want to go. So I'm going to go the other way and you can choose somebody else to go and to do this. And the Lord is saying, nope, it's going to be you. And he is intervening in a mighty way against this rebellious prophet. Now, we could look at this and we could say, well, if only Jonah had just done what he was supposed to the first time, then he could have just peacefully went right to Nineveh, preached, and the people eventually repent and all of that. But instead, he decided to rebel. And so now the Lord is having to change change the way he's approaching Jonah. Now he's going to have to get Jonah and coerce him to go. Or however we would look at that. Or we can look at this and say within the sovereign decree of God. This is exactly what was supposed to happen. Because what the Lord is setting in motion here. Is going to be for the salvation of others. Through a prophet's disobedience. He doesn't. He doesn't hinder Jonah or he doesn't put obstacles in front of Jonah whenever Jonah is leaving his hometown and he's going to Joppa. He's going to go to Joppa. He's going to get on a ship and he's going to go to Tarshish. Why didn't the Lord in this 50 mile journey do something to Jonah in order to stop him? To hinder him. That's a long trip on foot. Why didn't he put an obstacle in front of Jonah then? Because the Lord had his intentions. Of what he was going to do. Even through. The sinfulness of Jonah. And I say sinfulness. Because you think of this. You think of the. To the extent. That this prophet is rebelling. This isn't just a matter of. of sometimes how we rebel. Not to say that we're any better. Because we're not. But sometimes we find ourselves. Being tempted of something. And then we're. No one else is around. And we're not hearing any particular voices. We can trick ourselves into thinking that. There's nobody seeing. There's nobody around. There's nobody to hear me say this or whatever. Jonah actually hears from the Lord. Speaking to him. Go to Nineveh. And go preach. Because their wickedness has come up before me. Now the... Now, what Jonah is gathering here is, okay, if the Lord is saying to me to go to this particular city, which is evil, we already know it's evil. It's a Gentile city, and he wants me to preach there. Well, his intention is he's going to grant grace to them. Otherwise, why would he send me? Why wouldn't he just leave them in their sin to receive their due punishment? Why would I have to go to Nineveh and say anything? 
So Jonah understands what the Lord is doing. As he says at the end of the book. So he has hardened his heart, not desiring for any other that is within the Gentile uh, camp as far as in this great enemy of Israel to be pardoned, to have any grace, any of that. And then he's blatantly disobeying the Lord by hearing the Lord say, this is what I want you to do. Nope. And I'm going to go the other way. This is, this is rebellion on Jonah's part. But through this whole thing, look at this. The Lord doesn't put any obstacles until he's on a boat with other people who also happen to be Gentiles. The ones that he's going to go to and preach. Preach about the coming judgment to Gentiles. Because the Lord sends this great wind on the sea. <clears throat> the ship is about to break up. It is th that great of a storm. So that this is what happens. The sailors became afraid. And every man is crying to his God. Whatever God you serve. Pray. Ask him to deliver us. Let's take the cargo out. Let's lighten up the ship. Let's do whatever we need to. Call on your God. Maybe they'll be merciful. Where's Jonah? Oh, Jonah's there below in the hold of the ship. And he's sound asleep. This is a prophet who is at peace in his rebellion. He's not like we get sometimes, especially when we've, when we've committed a great sin or, or whatever the case is. We, we get very anxious and, and we're just, you know, you, you can't have any peace in your heart because you know what you did or you know what you said or whatever. You, you know that it was, it was sin against the Lord and it was offensive against the Lord. And so you're, you're just anxious. Not Jonah. I think I'll take a nap. I'm at peace with what I'm doing. That's, that's the place that he's in. There's not any repentance on Jonah's part. And you're going to see that as we work our way through here. He's perfectly fine in his rebellion. But, you know, knowing that. It's actually very comforting. To see a man like Jonah in the scripture. Because one, you see this. Even in Jonah's disobedience unto the Lord. What you don't see is the Lord saying to Jonah. Okay, I've had it with you. You're done. You don't see that. Instead, you're going to see how the Lord is going to teach Jonah about grace and mercy. And what a gracious God that he is. That gives a lot of encouragement and a lot of comfort to us because often we find ourselves in rebellion. Maybe not to this extent because we're not prophets as what Jonah was. But we still find ourselves in rebellion and any rebellion is offensive to God. And we find ourselves there. We enter into temptations and the temptations... 
At times, from our perspective and what we think in the moments is it's just too much. And so we give in. And you know, here's the thing as well that we need to understand is that even genuine believers can find themselves in sin, in terrible sin, even for a season. We're capable of doing that. Why? Because we still have, we still have corruption in us. And we're not perfected. We're not going to be perfected. And so it's going to be a constant battle. But the great encouragement that we have, especially with looking at what Jonah's doing is, is the Lord saying, you're still mine. Does he chastise us to, do, to, to get where we need to be? Of course he does. Does he often chastise us through our guilt and conviction by the Spirit of God who dwells within us? Yes, he does. Because whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And this is, this is, this is so comforting. It really brings peace to our hearts in one sense because it's not dependent upon me and it's not dependent upon you to remain in the faith. It's totally dependent upon God who has brought us into the faith to preserve us until the end because we are prone to wander. That's why I love that, that hymn. Just mainly for that, that couple of statements right there. I love the whole thing. But mainly for that few words. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's, that's so true. That is so true of us. And that's... That's a, another reason, perhaps, why I've, I've grown to appreciate so much the, the, the passage that is in Exodus 32 to 34 that, that was preached at the, at the conference here recently. Because when Moses comes before the Lord and he's saying to the Lord, show me your glory. And what is he needing? He's needing assurance from the Lord. How can I know that you're going to be gracious to this people who are obstinate? How can I know that you're going to be gracious to them on account of me? Is it, a con is it on account of me? And then what does the Lord say? I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. The basis of his gracious character being extended to any is himself. No conditions outside of himself. It's all him. And that's the very thing that we find here with Jonah. The Lord is still going to be gracious to him even through his rebellion. This rebellion that he's really at peace with. <clears throat> you notice something. As bad as the ship is being hammered by the waves and the storm, the wind, all of that. Everybody is calling unto the other sailors and saying, pray to your God. Jonah's down in the hold of the ship. He's not, he's not offering anything. We're not told in the passage that he's offering any prayers right now. The captain has to come to Jonah. And approach him and say, how is it that you're sleeping? Get up, call upon your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Now, each man is going to, they're going to bring the men in. They're going to cast lots. But you still don't hear any prayer from Jonah or any mention of a prayer from Jonah. Now he's awake. Everybody's fearful. Everybody's scared. Is Jonah praying to the Lord? Is Jonah asking the Lord of anything? We're not told that he's doing anything. 
He doesn't say anything. He doesn't reveal anything. Perhaps you have people that are there that are calling upon their gods by name. They don't know, they don't know who Jonah serves. They don't know anything about Jonah until the lot follows on him. And then they begin to inquire. Because if Jonah had been calling upon Yahweh in their presence, in their hearing, they would have said, okay, well, that's his God. But right now he's silent. And he's not saying a thing. This is the extent of that rebellion. I'm not praying because I know this is on account of me. He's not worried about dying. Because even when they get ready to throw him into the water, he's still not repentant. He's basically saying, this is how you can save your life. Throw me in. He doesn't say to the Lord, Lord, please forgive me. My life is getting ready to end. Did, did Jonah have any idea that the Lord was going to appoint a fish to come swallow him? No. He's like, throw me into the water. I'd rather die than go to Nineveh. That's his attitude. So, they're casting lots. The lot fell on Jonah. And so you see that, that emphasis on the part of the men here. Tell us now. That's, that's, that's how they're speaking to him. On whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country from? What people are you? Now, if he had been praying to Yahweh and they would have heard this, they could have gathered up that, okay, he's from the land of Israel. And we assume that they would know this, one, because he caught the boat in Joppa, and then when he does tell them where he's from and who he serves, they become exceedingly fearful, as if the Lord's reputation preceded him. Jonah says to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened. I said to him, how can you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Now, how did the men know this? Did the men uh, possibly, maybe, did they know about what happened in the Exodus? Did word get out as the Lord had shown his glory through everything that accomplished, that he accomplished in Egypt? As what Romans says, that I raised you up for this purpose to show my glory did those men know of that account of what happened after they were coming out of Egypt? Did they know of the, the great power of the land of, of Israel because of the great kings of David and Solomon that came before Jonah? Did they know some of these things? Most likely they knew something. Because as soon as he says, I'm a Hebrew and I serve Yahweh, they become exceedingly frightened. They become even more frightened, not only of the great storm, but of what's happening in the life of Jonah and who he's fleeing from. Now, these men are scared for their lives. This is very true. However, what these men say in these next couple of verses, most all theologians agree that this is a genuine confession of faith on their part. 
they become exceedingly frightened because this great storm's come upon them. They can't row any, any closer to the land. It's keeping them out. And they recognize who it's from. No other God can do this. They said to him, what should we do to you? What needs to be done on account of your rebellion? That the sea would become calm for us. For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. Pick me up, throw me into the sea. And the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. And this is where we're seeing God accomplishing his will. They're trying to row to land. They can't. It's becoming even stormier against them, as the text tells us in verse 13. But then look what happens. Then they called on the Lord. They called on Yahweh. That's the word. And said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, O Yahweh. Do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Once this takes place, they pick Jonah up. Of course, they throw him in after this is done. The sea stopped its raging. In the moment that they pick up this rebellious prophet who has told them this is why this is happening. And yes, that's his attitude. Throw me into the sea, I'd rather die. I'm not going. Throw him into the sea, everything becomes calm. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, through the rebellion of this prophet, through his sin, and not wanting to have anything to do with going to Nineveh and preaching to the Gentiles, preaching to any of the enemies of Israel, through that occurrence, the Lord has brought about the salvation of other Gentiles. That was his intent. He used the sinfulness of Jonah, keeping plan A, To bring about the salvation of others. Even though that wasn't Jonah's intent. This is where we're talking about. The sovereignty of God. In the sovereign decree of God. That he has decreed whatsoever comes to pass. And what he has decreed. Is brought about. Through his creation. By providence. God has orchestrated this whole thing. He is. He has worked through sinfulness of one of his own people in order to bring about the salvation of others. Jonah wouldn't have thought of that. Jonah, that wasn't his intent. He wants to flee his calling. He wants to get away from having anything to do with what God commanded him to do. And yet, even through this, the Lord says, I have others that are in uh, that that are my sheep and I got to bring them in, too. And I'm going to do it through you. That's the greatness of our God that we serve. God doesn't just use the obedience of his people to accomplish his will. Then that would mean he's limited only if his people obey. 
our God is much greater than, than the will of men. He works through the, the disobedience and he works through the sinfulness even of his own people in order to bring about the greatest glory for himself. And if we doubt any of that, the prime example of all of that is Christ. Through the rebellion of his own people and their rejection of him, he brings about the greatest demonstration of his love and his grace in Christ. That's how the Lord works. Everything goes according to plan. That doesn't give us license to do, uh, to, to be rebellious and to be sinful and all of that. That's not what this is about. Again, we are still morally accountable to our Lord. But here's the, the, the amazing thing is that even our sin, the Lord can use. Because it's in our sin. Let's look at it this way. And you look at it personally in your own life. When you commit rebellion against the Lord and, and you find yourself into terrible sin or whatever the case is. What is it that happens? When you have committed whatever sin, you have said something you shouldn't, you've, you've seen something that you shouldn't, you've acted in a way that you shouldn't, whatever. And then you have the conviction of the Lord come upon you. That guilt, that conviction of the Lord that you recognize, I have sinned against my father. What does it do? It drives you even more to Christ. It makes you lean upon him even more for his grace and his mercy to preserve you. And so something, even though it is evil and it is blatantly evil, evil is never good. We're not saying that at all. But even through those particular evil acts that the Lord is showing the riches of his glory, the riches of his grace that he has lavished on you. And that brings you even closer to him, recognizing who you really are, but seeing who he really is. So that gives us great hope. That, that really brings peace to our hearts. Not to say that I can go do this, but to understand that even in my sin, I'm not, I'm not thwarting anything in the sense of that God has to come up with a plan B for my life. Because if that was the case, we wouldn't be on plan B or plan C. We would be on even more than what the alphabet contains. Because we mess up that much. We sin that much. Our God is big enough and great enough not only to orchestrate the end and to declare the end and to decree the end, but to bring about all the means that he uses to bring about the end. That's the greatness of God. What can the Lord do and bring about in our own sinfulness? Sometimes we may never know that. We shouldn't go looking for it because that's what the Apostle Paul says. Shall we sin more that grace may abound? God forbid that we would have that attitude. There's never a license to sin. Because what is produced in us is an understanding that I'm committing, as R.C. Sproul would say, I'm committing cosmic treason against my Lord whenever I sin. And so there is that, that, that stirring within us. To seek to do what we ought. 
to, to walk in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, not so that I can look at myself and determine whether or not I'm saved, but so that I can please my Lord in doing the things that I know that he has in his word. Then he says, this is pleasing in my sight. Our salvation is dependent upon him, him alone. Not in ourselves, not in our works, not in anything that we're doing. It's all him. And when we find ourselves in sin and we wonder, how is it that you could have anything to do with me? Then we look to Christ and we say, I understand. Because it's him, not me. You can use my rebellion and you use my sin in order to bring about whatever you please. Because you are that awesome. Not limited by anything. That is so astonishing to me. Of just how big God really is. He doesn't need the prayers of anyone. To do anything that he desires to do. He doesn't need. The obedience of his people. In order to work within the world. He does as he pleases. In heaven. And on earth. None can thwart his will. None can hinder him. None can stay his hand. He accomplishes all things. That he intends to do. And. This is going to bring him the most glory. The things that we wouldn't think of. As it is here. With the prophet Jonah. How could he have done this? Because that was his plan. I need. Uh, or uh, he doesn't really need. He's, he's going to bring these people in over here regardless. And so he orchestrates the means by which he's going to do that. So you know what that does do? And again, I want to be very careful how we say this. Because I don't want it to be ever misconstrued to say, well, I don't have to or I don't need to. But whom the Lord intends to save is going to be saved even in spite of our own rebellion, not to go to them. Because he's already decreed the means by which he will bring that one to faith. Are you still morally accountable because you disobeyed? Yes, you are. And yes, I am. And why, the reason why I say that is, again, not to give any excuse, but it is to un help us to understand that the salvation of sinners is not your area. Whether or not they believe upon Christ or they don't is not dependent upon you. That's not your responsibility. Some make it their responsibility. Well, I should have said something to that person in the store, but I didn't. What if they die? And what, what, what if they die in their sins? It's my fault. And they place a great weight on themselves that it's my fault that an unbelieving rebel endures the justice of God. And we have to understand this, that when God 
before the foundation of the world has chosen those in Christ. That number will never decrease. That number will never increase. Those whom he has chosen will be brought to faith. And it's not on you to be the deciding factor. It's upon a sovereign God who he alone can open the eyes of the unregenerate. That's why I say that. You know, evangelism is something that we are indeed to do. It should be something that we want to do because we should want to see sinners come to Christ. But evangelism is successful not because people come to faith necessarily. It's successful because we're obedient in doing it. The saving part is his. We are the ambassadors who put out the call, but only God is the one who draws them with that effectual calling and saves them. That's not your area. It's not my area. We can drive ourselves crazy and, and miss the, the peace of God and the blessing of God and different things like that that we experience in our life because of, of putting upon ourselves a responsibility that is not ours. It's not our responsibility to save people. It's our responsibility to call them to repentance and to share the gospel with them. That is absolutely. And we're in rebellion when we don't do it. But the saving part is all him. So remember that, dear friends. And that shouldn't hinder us from sharing the gospel. In fact, as John Piper says, that should empower us to share the gospel. Because for whom the Lord intends to save, he will save through the declaration of the gospel of his son. It will come about because the Holy Spirit of God will apply it to their hearts and bring them to faith. So that should empower us to preach the gospel even more. Because it's not contingent upon us. It's all him. Every bit of it is him. And even some of the crazy things that happen in our lives. Or some of the most difficult times that happen in our lives. The Lord can use in order to bring about the greatest glory for himself. And in that we can rest. And in that we can have peace. And in that we can rejoice. That God is glorified through all things. We'll see some more of that here in Jonah. If you would, let's stand together and we will be dismissed. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for what it teaches us of your sovereignty and your power and your might, that you're not hindered by any. You accomplish all your good pleasure. You accomplish your sovereign will, even among rebellious creatures. Father, let us, let us be at peace knowing these truths, but let us not be at peace in rebellion. And let us never take this as, as a, an excuse not to do what you have called us to do. Not to be obedient. We should desire these things. We should want to be obedient to you. Father, work within our hearts. Help us to, to 
to overcome our temptations and our corruption. Help us, Lord, to do all things that are pleasing to you. But let us also remember that our assurance of our salvation is all in Christ. Help us, Father, to remember these truths and, and to allow them to penetrate our hearts to the extent that it promotes in us a greater desire to walk worthy of our calling, that you would be honored in our lives and not dishonored. To be the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your attention. You are dismissed.